welcome to Betsy Goes to the Movies. I'm Betsy. This is Nick Knight. I had actually watched the show and liked it, although I don't really remember anything about it now. But I didn't even know about the movie, which was made for TV. I think it was supposed to be the pilot. Anyway, I used to have the biggest crush on Rick Springfield, and this movie reminded me that was justified. Uh, this was interesting. It really did watch more like a TV show than a movie. So this came out in 1989 from CBS. It was directed by Farhad Mann and written by Barney Cohen and James Peria. It stars Rick Springfield as Nick, John Kapolis as Skinky, Robert Harper as Jack, and Laura Johnson as Elise. My podcast episodes are released on Thursdays. I post episode notes and updates to my website at BetsyGoesToTheMovies.com and updates on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BetsyGoesToTheMovies. If you have any good, funny, campy, cheesy, so bad it's good, or just plain bad movie suggestions, please email me at BetsyGoesToTheMovies at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes if you listen there. It's the only way Apple will put my podcast into their rotation for suggested listening. All right, so this one came from my friend Rich. It's actually, it's not even available in HD. Um, I managed to rent it for $2 from Amazon. I could buy it for four. Uh, yeah, so Nick Knight, which I don't know if you remember the TV show from the 90s, Forever Night, but that's what this movie is what that show was based on. So, it can't be worse than Blood, Rain, and Priest. That's all I gotta say. I hope. Please don't let it be worse. Alright, I already have no idea what's going on. It looks like we're probably in Mexico. It's the site of some kind of dig. Everyone's... Oh, that guy's running fast. You got guys who are pouring water over their heads, guys who are sifting through sand through a screen. So, hot blonde archaeologist, because of course... All archaeologists are hot, blonde, and wear their long flowing hair down when in extreme sandy situations and wear the same khaki-colored shirts and hats and cargo shorts. She's brushing off this thing that looks like a cup that is a face with fangs and just based on the camera angle and the obsession of the guy staring at it, I'm guessing something bad happens to him first. Rick Springfield! Excellent! I used to have the biggest crush on him when I was a kid. Aww. And a special guest star. It's a movie. Why is there a guest star? Anyway, we're now flying over a city. Like, the camera angle is something flying with a lot of heavy breathing and the sound of wings flapping. So I'm guessing this is a vampire's point of view. I think this is LA. That looks like the observatory. Of course, it's hard to tell watching an SD movie on an HDTV. Yeah, that's the observatory. The camera angles are horrible. So it's all point of view from the character who, of course, we haven't seen. So it's intentionally shaky and jerky. It's pretty nauseating. We're in a museum, by the way. Wow, they, whoever fucking filmed this, Jesus Christ. I'm pretty sure I need to take Dramamine just to watch this movie. It keeps panning between a guard who's walking around and then these horrific camera shots that are super jerky and moving up and down and all around. So not only are the 
camera angle's terrible, but you're going between nice smooth angles and super shitty ones. All right, so he breaks glass to get whatever the thing was that they found in wherever they were, which alerts the guard to his presence. And the guard, who has clearly never held a gun in his life, is yelling who's there. Oh, smart. Okay, so <laughs> remember when I said this couldn't be worse than Blood Rain or Priest? I, I feel like my friends either really hate me or just really love watching me suffer. So the guard yells who's there and at least has the common sense to fire at whatever is coming at him because we're back to that thing's point of view. And then the next shot, he just falls on the ground. There's no blood, there's no perspective. Now we are looking at the observatory from the outside as it's turning upside down and there's growling and this is severely nauseating. Okay, now we have a man's very hairy chest and heavy panting and it's somebody who looks like he's in a tanning bed. He is in a tanning bed. Oh, this is Mr. Knight. So I'm guessing that uh, Rick Springfield, sorry, Nick Knight is not a vampire yet. He comes in three times a week, but he never gets tan. Nice little driving montage of him and his sweet ass convertible going up Mulholland Drive. Oh, he's such a humanitarian. He's stopping off in the local homeless area to make sure that Jeannie and Topper have a place to sleep for the night. I guess whatever took the idol, bull, whatever the hell it is, is a maniac and Nick's concerned about them. To be fair, the homeless population is usually the first to go. Oh, he's a cop. Oh, that's right. Okay. I'm slowly getting with the program. I mean, I will say, except for the shitty camera sequences that made me sick and the way the guard died. This is definitely better than the other two. Oh, now the guard's got blood everywhere and gaping wounds on his neck that were not there when he fell down the first time. So we're back at the museum. Also, it's the Museum of Natural History that also looks exactly like the observatory, so I don't know. Or maybe that always was the Museum of Natural History and I just had it wrong depending on what movie I was watching and what it was called at the time. Anyway, so we've got a bunch of people standing around the guard's body, right? And you've got some, I guess there's CSI, another guard who's staring down while eating a donut. Oh, and this is all, the camera angle is all from the body's point of view. So a guard that's staring down while eating a donut and then you've got the photographer and then somebody else comes up and says that's not how you do it grabs the camera gets like really low and starts saying stuff like come on baby work it for me oh the guy who took over the camera's name is skanky he apparently wears a very pungent cologne there have been four murders in four weeks so apparently among other things nick also is an amateur archaeologist who is now hitting on our original archaeologist by trying to impress her with his knowledge of the artifacts that came from the Rio Azul region. So now we have a name 
for where all of this came from. Ah, but see, you're assuming he's only been alive for 40 years. Oh, her name is Elise Hunter. See, that's what I said. She was in her office, heard the glass crash, and then heard the gunshots, so she comes to investigate. No weapon. Huh. I wonder why there's guns firing. And then she's trying to justify it with, I may be stupid, but I'm curious. Curiosity is the basis of all discovery. Yeah, you know what else? It also will kill you. Oh, so the thing she found was a jade goblet. Very rare. Only one of its kind in existence. Turns out that this cup was used in certain rituals to drink the sacrificed victim's blood. So the press shows up and that gives him shit. He's like, oh, he actually calls them out on the fact that the only reason why they care is because now it's somebody who's got a job. Nobody cared when it was the homeless. So apparently, oh, we're at the autopsy now. So apparently the coroner knows what Nick is and is working with him to try to get him to be able to do certain human things. And like, he's the one who's gotten him tanning and Nick can actually stay in a tanning bed for up to 10 minutes now. And he's getting him to drink teas and things like that. Oh my God, Lucy is just so adorable. She's turned herself upside down and it's reaching her paws out to me and it's just like, okay. So it turns out the homeless people, when they were being killed and drained of blood, they were sharp, slashes and this guy are puncture wounds which implies teeth so that's different also they don't know it but the guy can fly in a way that makes me very nauseous now we're back at the police station where knight is learning that he's going to be partnered with shanky i've already forgotten the guy's name that's terrible nick is not thrilled skanky that's his name like they flat out hate each other this is a terrible combination the captain's point is Nick only works nights, Kinky only works days, partner them up, cover all ground, because now it's obvious that the killer has expanded his profile. Dude, Nick's got a sweet-ass fucking house. Naturally, it's full of artifacts and televisions with floor-to-ceiling windows. Oh, he's got shades that roll down. Like, why do you need five TVs? And somehow he's got the jade cup, which he fills with blood, and then puts in the microwave. Seriously? So is he the bad guy in this? Because I thought he was the protagonist in the TV show. So now he's sitting in a chair in front of the five TVs that are all showing the same thing, which is the sunrise coming up over the LA skyline, dipping his finger in the blood and licking it before actually drinking it and having an out-of-body experience. All right, we're back to flying over the museum. Please don't let this be as painful as the last time. So I was wrong. It is the, <laughs> I am just totally failing at paying attention in this movie. It's the Los Angeles County Historical and Art Museum. So, you know, nothing that I said it was before. Somebody kills somebody over an artifact she brings back from South America and she's just like, yeah, no, it's fine. I'll just stay here and keep on working on shit alone at night when no one else is here. Oh my God, she eats terribly. Her diet's worse than ours. So she's got some book about early excavations from Alton Canal that she's eating a tub of ice cream over. Oh, I like her earrings. Because, you know, getting ice cream all over a book like that would be great. My guess would be she finds a picture of Nick all right, we have hot Rick Springfield walking around topless. I'm totally fine with this. I also like the soundtrack. 
So he has, from his answering machine, yes, that's in this movie, it's an invitation from Elise Hunter to stop by and see if she's found anything on the goblet. And the forensic pathologist who informs him he needs a Jewish mother to remind him to eat, then he tries to eat a steak and spits it out. I feel like a steak's a little ambitious, especially cooked. Like if he can't even drink a sip of tea, how is he going to eat meat that's cooked? He's stuck doing his, what is it called? Right around? I don't know. Anyway, he's stuck with Skanky for the night, who is eating a clove of garlic because he just gave blood, because apparently in LA in 92, it was a thing to give blood in the precinct. Sonny's very chirpy. Um, and then he's eating garlic, which makes Nick sick. So glad to see we're sticking with all of the vampire stereotypes here. The forensic pathologist definitely does not like Skanky, who is very abrasive. The good doctor thinks that the guard was alive when he was being drained, whereas the other three victims were all strangled and then the blood was pumped out through incisions in their jugulars. And he also found fabric under the guard's nails. I love Nick's Cadillac. We're not missing much. They're having like, it's one of those exposition, getting to know you kind of conversations where we learn that Skanky's been married seven years. His wife keeps trying to get him to give up smoking. Nick doesn't want anybody smoking in his caddy. The reason why he's got the caddy is the 59 caddy has the most trunk space. Shots fired at a pool. The caddy does not do a graceful U-turn in the middle of the fucking street. I'm so confused about what's going on right now. So they get to the place where the shots are fired and I have no idea what this has to do with anything in the movie. Um, there's another cop there who acts like he's fucking strung out on God only knows what. When when Nick's like, I'm going in after him, help the coach, because this guy shows up, shoots up the place, shoots the coach, there are kids involved, There's everything's on fire. I don't even know why stuff's on fire or how that got started. Uh, this other cop who is their backup is yelling, you got seven commendations last year, let me do this, it's my turn. He's like, okay, fine, whatever. So this guy who's literally bouncing everywhere, like he doesn't just stand, he bounces in place, bounces in, and he's trying hostage negotiation, and of course gets shot like pretty much immediately. And yet somehow, even though he got shot point blank in the chest, and there's blood, is able to get himself out of the way. Okay, I don't know who this fucking guy is, but he's got a hold of this girl by the hair and he looks completely deranged. Have no idea what this has to do with the goblet or vampires or anything. So now all of a sudden she fights back and gets away and it's like, why, why now? So Nick tries to take advantage of the confusion to rush the guy who shoots him point blank in the chest. Nick falls in the pool. The guy's still firing. There's no blood in the water, but the water's boiling now. So Nick's not a very hot vampire. Also, the vampire special effects are so terrible. He's supposed to be flying towards the guy and it's just the shots of his upper body that tilts kind of. So now Skanky's on the scene trying to cover night. Dude just jumped through 
a window and is running around outside. Knight's doing his weird, I'm flooding through the air, but I'm actually probably standing on something while they jiggle the camera routine. Nick then throws the guy into a sign, electrocutes him, and is kind of like freaking out because now there's a helicopter flying around and he looks like a vampire. Skanky's just standing in the pool yelling night over and over. Like that's, you don't see anyone. You don't hear anyone. Maybe go look. Also, what happened to the other cop? The one who got shot? Because now we're back with the homeless people. Jeannie and Topper are going to get ice cream. They are such a wholesome couple. They make me think of something out of a Disney, like one of the old Disney movies. Someone who's scary enough to scare the punks in this homeless area is coming after them. Oh, okay. So now we're back in, after watching Genie and Topper get killed, which sucks. Again, from weird jerky camera point of view, they really need to stop doing that. Uh, we're back in the precinct where Bounce Cop only lost a little blood from a shoulder wound. I guess crazy shooter guy did not die. Apparently nobody died except the unfortunate homeless and the security guard. But he did say that a flying monster was what threw him into the sign and that it was a vampire. And the captain's just like, I swear if I hear the word vampire one more time. I guess night's not back. Nobody knows where he is. Oh God, these fucking camera angles again. Whoever came up with the idea of shooting everything from a flying vampire's point of view should be forced to have to watch this over and over and over. So Knight just took off from the scene, and I'm really curious how he's going to explain all of this. I'm assuming he's someone flying towards the museum because we're back to that now, with the exact same shots from the opening sequence of somebody moving through the museum behind the columns. Elise is eating more junk food than I've ever seen anybody eat anywhere and still reading books about old digs. Apparently there was some dig where the bodies of the workers were found the next morning drained of blood. Oh my god, those copiers. They were so huge. Yeah, she found a picture in the book that seemed odd, so she just took a photocopy of it, enlarged by 141%, called it. How many more times are you going to blow it up? Like the fourth time you could clearly see who it was. So he is the one, of course, shocker, who has come into the museum and snuck up behind her as she's staring at this picture of him with what is clearly a scratch on his chest from a picture taken in like 1940-something. Oh, so it turns out that there was one of those goblets already in the dig, and that's what he had, so he's not the one who stole the other one. They just made you think that for some weird reason. She's managing to stay very calm, considering that she's pretty much figured out he's not quite human. Oh, they're on a first-name basis. How sweet. Wait, what just happened? So now, all of a sudden, they get to a first-name basis, and... They start quoting Edward Thomas, and then he's accusing her of burying herself in the past and hiding. Why are you unclipping her glasses? You literally just found a picture of him from 1940-something, and you're saying he hasn't lived that long? And now they are making out. That moved really quickly. He starts to go all vampire-y, and then yells, 
no, weirds her out, takes off when the fucking security guard comes in. I don't know. That whole sequence is just bizarre. Yay, back at the precinct, prostitutes are being brought in. Still, nobody, none of the cops seem concerned that they don't know where Nick is. Skinky drove Nick's car back to the precinct, and he's just like, yeah, whatever. This thing drives really well. Jack, the doctor, forensic pathologist, I now know like six different ways to identify him, which is interesting because usually in these movies I get to the very end before I find out anybody's name. Anyway, he's the only one who seems like concerned. Nick's home is an old movie theater. Like, nice theater. So Nick's in his home, freaking out, he's got the bottle of blood, Jack's yelling at him. Because Jack really believes that he can turn Nick human by making him do human things. Being in a tanning bed, eating food. Heart-wrenching moment. You don't know what it's like to sit and grow all these years and watch those you love grow old and die one by one and never have a real relationship with a woman. And so now I'm going to open up to you that I kissed her and then I almost killed her. And it's so tragic that I'm going to sit here with my chiseled boy next door good looks and cry. And then Jack says, Nick, don't you think it's time we talked about the others? And now we're watching some truck drive past the theater. Okay, so now we're getting down to like what's really actually going on. It's, we're at the 41 minute point. I don't understand what went on for half of the first 40 minutes and why it was even necessary. Uh, still confused about why we had to have the whole fucking killing in the pool thing. Anyway, so somebody called LaCroix, not the soda, has been killing everyone. He's the one who wants the goblets. And he was apparently Nick's master, the one that turned him. There's some ceremony that involves the goblets that will turn them mortal. And that's what LaCroix is trying to do. But then Nick says LaCroix wants to keep the same blood in both their veins. So I don't, I don't get it. Does he want them to be mortal? Does he not? If he wants them to still be the same, why isn't he working with Nick? Instead of trying to stop Nick from getting the goblets? Apparently LaCroix has an obsession with Nick and follows him everywhere he goes. Because Nick stopped killing and kills off the homeless as food, but also to torment Nick, because he knows nobody else will care, which is kind of twisted psychological warfare. Okay, Elise is at her desk with even more junk food. Like, this is insane. It looks like she emptied out an entire convenience store candy aisle, candy and snack aisles, sorry, into her office. Apparently, you pour blood from goblet to goblet and then drink it, and that cures vampirism. Uh, that's the most anticlimactic ceremony I've ever heard. It's the next day. There's a blood drive for the homeless. They can't find Jeannie and Topper. A bunch of kids are playing ball. Gee, I wonder what's going to happen. So, wait. The kids found Jeannie and Topper in the morning, and it took until night for the bodies to get picked up? How did Elise get Nick's number? Sorry, I know this is like way after the fact, but that just occurred to me. Anyway, okay, Nick's upset. 
Skanky's like, dude, connection, there is a blood drive here. Blood's missing. They can't find Jeannie. Topper's the only one who was killed. Or whose body they found. He does... Oh, this movie has so many weird things that don't make sense. Uh, Skanky is trying to form the connection, and he's like, hey, look, we have a link. They do a blood drive here every Thursday. The homeless know that they stay here. They come and get... They come and give blood, get some money. It's a connection. And Night yells, you work day shift, right? Skanky says, yeah. He says, what's that got to do with it? And Night yells, work it out in your own time. What? I, I don't... What does that even mean? Now we have a nightclub. What the hell? Okay, everything in here is purple neon. And I'm guessing this is supposed to be some kind of goth club. Some gorgeous woman with shellacked hair clearly is the owner. Nick intimidates the bouncer to get in by picking him up by the crotch of his jeans in a scene that looks 100% natural. I gotta say, like, if Nick wanted to do something to give back to the community, being a cop was probably not the smartest thing, because if this LaCroix person keeps hunting him down, it's just going to make him look suspicious when he does stuff like flake out and run away and disappear and yell weird insults at his partner that make no sense at all. God, for a minute I thought that was Billy Idol. I remember going to clubs like this and wearing clothes like this in 93 and 4 and she's doing a really good job of ignoring him. Oh, her name is Jeanette. Sorry, Jeanette. <laughs> She heard he was in town. He is a fucking cop. Like, that's not something that happens overnight. And he, according to the guy who was shot point blank, yet somehow only got a shoulder wound, uh, he's had seven commendations in the last three years. So, I heard you were in town. Mm. All right, a lot of dialogue implying past history that makes no sense. Again, has no relevance to the movie. We have no backstory for she hates baseball. Something happened in Chicago on Wrigley Field. There was somebody named Jean-Pierre. Okie dokie. So after that whole little bizarre weird cat and mouse thing, she gives Nick the information he's looking for. As he starts to leave, he realizes he's being followed. It turns out it's Elise, who immediately is surrounded by vampires who come out of the woodwork because you know, blonde woman who's human and not a vampire. And one of them grabs Nick's shirt and when he pulls it down, she sees the scar, you know, the same one that was in the picture. She blew up like 16,000 times yet somehow was able to retain perfect clarity. I like her. She jumps in this car and she just flat out refuses to get out. She's like, no, I don't care if it's dangerous. I'm not leaving. It has something to do with vampires. So he accuses her of reading tabloids, and she's like, yeah, I, I totally do. By the way, check this out. Pulls out the picture. He tries to blow it off. Oh, it looks like me. She's like, dude, the scar is even the same. Come on. Oh, sorry, it was 1889, not 1940s. My bad. She's remarkably calm. And she just flat out accuses him of being a vampire and tells him all the reasons why she thinks he's one. He tells, he's, he's so gaslighting her. I get why he has to, but it's ridiculous. He's not even doing a good job. 
Well, everyone in the world's got a devil. She's totally romanticizing this, like, not in a, in a sexual way, but in a, I'm an archaeologist, you could be my gateway to the past kind of way. Like, she really wants it to be real that badly. But he totally has her believing that she's just, like, misread everything and she doesn't know what she's talking about. Dude, look at the road. You're driving. Look at the road. God, I hate that. She's still refusing to get out of the car. All right, so the Jean-Pierre guy, I guess is Nick's real name. Lacroix is now a DJ named Nightcrawler and is sending out messages over the radio for Nick through songs, starting with My Prerogative, which I never considered to be threatening in any way. I'm kind of confused what that has to do with the storyline. Not that that's super surprising. Ah, uh, the mullet ponytail. What the fuck? Like I said, Nightcrawler <laughs> is at the radio station uh, with the headphones to his ear doing some really bizarre dance where he just sort of like jiggles his butt a lot in place. So, Nick, being the intelligent person he is, pulls up to, I'm guessing this is the radio station, says, if you hear anything weird or I'm not out in 20 minutes, uh, call dispatch, and then leaves her alone in the car, the convertible, with the top down, in an alley with barbed wire and a lot of fog. Should anyone be surprised when she does not stay in the car? Because I'm not. Now she's run down the alley to the gate. Now she's going through the gate and following them. Lacroix seems a little deranged. See, I always tell people that if I had a chance to become a vampire, I would not do it because I don't want to live forever. I really honestly believe if you were stuck having to live forever, you would become the sun glued. Great. Slaughterhouse. Lacroix got the other goblet, he's taunting Nick with it, he's drinking blood out of it, there's a lot of heart beating stuff. God, I wish they would stop with the spinning camera angles. Lacroix challenges Nick to fight him for the goblet and it's just kind of like, I don't see how this could possibly work. Like, Nick hasn't been feeding and this is an older vampire that already has superior strength. It's probably not going to go well. Well, at least unfucked up. Nick looks up and sees her, which gives away her location to Lacroix, who's been taunting Nick, trying to get a rise out of him, and just found his fucking kryptonite. Of course, not before. At least here's all the different ways that a vampire can be killed. Because, of course, Lacroix monologues. Like, that's, that is something that we have to have. Lacroix's going to make him choose between saving the goblet or the girl. Okay, vampire fight. I don't know what we're supposed to be seeing here. They're basically just staring at each other and roaring with fangs out and under lighting. Somehow the floor is magically lighting up so that you get the shadow effect on the face. Either, or maybe they generate their own lights. I don't know. Anyway, they're basically holding on to each other, spinning around in a circle, glaring at each other with a lot of yelling. Somehow Nick manages to throw Lacroix up against a wall into a bunch of stakes, Lacroix starts freaking out and spasming and knocks a hole in the wall. And it's daylight, by the way. 
in the like 30 minutes they've been down there, the sun has fully risen and it's like noon. Nick is now trying to get into the trunk of his caddy while he's going up in smoke, literally. So <laughs> Elise is now calling the precinct from a payphone. It's still full daylight, by the way. She witnessed everything, the whole vampire fight, and the discussion that sunlight can kill vampires. She's calling to see if he's there. How the fuck does she think he would get his his Cadillac is still in the alley, right? If I just found out that the guy I was with was a vampire and heard that he could be killed by sunlight and his car is in an alley and the keys are hanging out of the trunk, it's a pretty damn good guess. That's where he is. All right. We are in the bathroom of the precinct because Kanki needs to piss and the captain has decided this is a perfect opportunity to start bitching about Nick. Of course, Jack's in there because why not? And Skanky is still convinced there's a link between the blood drives and the homeless, and it turns out all of the homeless who were killed, their blood type is O negative. And he says that's the key, and they're like, yeah, no, but the guard was AB positive, but the guard was also killed in a different way, which somehow everyone has conveniently forgotten in the two days since that fact came out. And it turns out Nick's car has been impounded. So Skanky's the one picking up the car. And he's just like, there's something off about night. Something's not right. Nobody's listening to me. There is something weird going on here. It's a cult thing. I know it is. I don't think he's wrong. Like an incision doesn't imply teeth. It implies a knife or a sharp edge. Everybody who's being taken is O negative. And the blood drive guy in the beginning, middle, I don't know, whenever the blood drive was being done in the precinct was saying that if you're a type O negative person you can only get typo negative whereas typo negative is the universal donor so you can donate it to anyone but you can only receive it so maybe there's somebody who needs typo negative blood for a person who's died I don't know I think Skanky's right is what I'm saying okay so Nick's car was impounded which means it had to be moved Toad moved something to the impound lot and he was in the trunk the entire time, and now Skanky's starting the car, and he's, like, alarmed. Turns out Skanky's also from Chicago. Okay, we are in a hospital, I guess, although everyone looks really old, so maybe it's maybe it's a assisted living or a care facility. I don't know. It's another one of those camera angle point of view shots where you are the camera, which means guess he's getting nauseous again. Hey, I was right. It was the blood drive guy from the police precinct. Oh, they're in a blood bank that has a lot of people in bathrobes in the hallway. So Skanky's decided to follow up on his own lead. He's like, fuck it. There's something weird going on. So he's at the blood bank. Somehow he magically got the right one. Nick lets himself out of the trunk. I'm trying to figure out how he's going to explain this one. <laughs> he's changing clothes and he's stripping down in the parking deck and the old woman walking past him is very appreciative. She's pretending to be shocked. He gets on the elevator with her and he's standing a little bit in front of her and she's checking out his ass. And now they're getting off the elevator and she is setting him up with her granddaughter and wants him to come over for dinner. All right, so he sees Skanky arguing with the nurse because she refuses to give him access to the records. He's just going to take the direct approach and help himself to the doctor's office. Well, 
We used to have a computer like that. Fenner, donation guy, or blood drug guy, rather, is not the doctor. So we have established that. <laughs> Fenner recognizes the keys to Nick's caddy. So Skanky starts spouting off facts like the trunk space. Nick's little surveillance job on the computer proves that Skanky was right. All of the homeless victims were O-negative blood donors. Now we're back to another jerky, terrible point of view camera angle, and it's Nick's car. At least this time we know it's Fenner. All right, Fenner's doing something to Nick's engine. Nick printed the files proving Skanky was right, hides in the trunk of the car again. Here comes Skanky. Ew, that's brake fluid. All right, losing control, driving down a hill, drives through a mirror, wrecks the car. Caddy's getting towed. Fenner shows up at the side of the wreck. Phone books. I call bullshit. It never was that easy to find any name in the phone book. So what? We're in a body shop. Skanky's trying to get somebody to help him get the car repaired. The guy's like, it's completely total. Tries to get the trunk open. Nick's holding the trunk closed. He's like, you're basically going to have to bring me another Cadillac that I can completely switch out for parts because it's the only way to do anything with this. So then he walks away. Skanky's freaking out for good reason. That's when Nick climbs out of the trunk and confronts him about the car. And like, how is he going to explain the fact that he's suddenly there? And then he shows Skanky that the brakes were cut. But hey, at least he gives Skanky credit for being right. Oh, does this mean they're partners now? Elise, who drives a really cool Jeep, by the way, now has Nick's alarm code because as part of the foreshadowing for this movie, he tells her that the glyphs that he can read are his alarm code for his home. Because of course he does. Why wouldn't he? Let me guess, I bet she finds the goblet and thinks he's the killer. Oh, no, she already saw the other goblet. Never mind. I think Nick is starting to like Skanky. Who could be coming up the elevator? Oh, don't be an idiot. Oh, it's Genie. Oh, smart. Oh, okay, so, ah, uh, Jesus. Okay, so Elise has built a fire to try to warm up Genie, who is there trying to find Nick. She was collapsed in the elevator. Elise has called 911. Fenner is the one who shows up. Fenner's mother died earlier in the year she was o negative and she died because she lost a lot of blood in a car accident and some of the blood that she was given was contaminated with hepatitis so their working theory is he blames the homeless because they were street people and thinks that some of their blood slipped through and killed his mother okay so this is all well and good but what about lacroix all right fenner's at nick's beating up Elise. Janie's like, fuck you, dude, you killed my man. Now he's set fire to the place. Nick flies in and Janie's just like, uh, dude? Oh, I'm guessing this is LaCroix who's flying? Because now we have another flying camera angle that's really bad and making me feel sick. And all of a sudden LaCroix shows up out of nowhere, kills Fenner for killing the homeless people. So he wants like one final throw down with Nick. Nick is really weak. Elise is like, drink my blood. Make me immortal. Take me. He doesn't bite her. 
So LaCroix is beating the crap out of him. Then LaCroix bites Elise. Then Nick stabs LaCroix in the gut with a burning steak. There's a really terrible death sequence. Nick throws LaCroix into a wall. Terrible death sequence. Oh my god. This is, this is horrible. So LaCroix is like now melting. Like, like it's obvious he's just wax at this point. Nick's just kind of staring at him. The fire's still going. I don't know why this is still a thing. They get Jeannie out. So they've got the fire hoses, which are only turned on the stone part of the building while the fire is raging in the penthouse, which is on the top floor. The water's nowhere near in contact with that. Okay, so now all of a sudden we're at the museum. We've got the goblet and a plaque that says in memory of Elise Hunter and Nick's saying she wanted to live forever and Jack's going on this philosophical thing about the idea of not dying is very seductive. And it, I think it's interesting how they know that the guard was killed by somebody else and it's weird that the goblet was in Nick's possession and nobody's questioning it. He's all sad because now he can't do the goblet ritual because LaCroix destroyed one of the goblets. And Skanky shows up. Somehow he managed to get Nick's caddy working. Apparently he also now has a permanent partner. Okay, well, that was Nick Knight. It's very obvious it was a setup for a TV show, so that's probably why it was as disjointed as it was, but I liked it. It actually made me want to watch the TV show again. Trust me, this is definitely not the worst of the vampire movies. Anyway, thank you Rich for the suggestion. This was doable. Oh god, more fucking camera shots. What is with this? Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I will be back with another great vampire movie.